one of the games that Hannah, my two-year-old, and I love to play is hide-and-seek. Um, so Hannah's still learning how hide-and-seek really works. Um, she hasn't fully gotten the game yet, so usually she'll tell me where to hide, then she'll go away, and then she'll come back and find me, and then she'll shout because she found me. So I'm, I'm trying to teach her that that's not how hide-and-seek works. Um, and so we have a two-bedroom apartment, so it's not like we have a lot of space anyway, but I, I get real proud of myself when I find a good spot that she can't easily find. So, so I hide, and I'm sitting there, uh, except the spot is often too good that two minutes will pass, and then four minutes pass, and then seven minutes pass, and then ten minutes later, I'm standing in the dark in a closet waiting for a two-year-old to come find me, right? So I'm saying to myself, this stinks, I've got to change the game a little bit. But, but one of the things that I'm learning is, you play games like hide and seek thinking that the point of the game is to hide real well when the truth is the point of the game is to be found, right? Like you, you hide in order to be found. We play the game because the funnest part of the game, the time when Hannah screams with glee is when she finds me, when the one you're looking for actually finds you or you're found by the one that you are hiding from. Like the meanest thing I could possibly do would be to let my two-year-old hide and then not go after her. To just let her sit in a closet because she's such a good hider. No, the, the point of the game is to hide. We, we run longing to be pursued. We hide longing to be sought after. We looked last week at Jonah 1 verses 1 to 3. And in the first three verses... You couldn't get past verse 3 before you find that the prophet Jonah has fled from the presence of the Lord. He's run to Tarshish. He's fled, the verse ends, from the presence of the Lord. And in all likelihood, the story should just end there. But it doesn't because we have a God who pursues, a God who chases those who runs, a God who finds those who hide. So this week we're continuing the story. It's a great story. We pick it up at verse 4. Let me pray while you turn there. It's on page 774. It's a passage Tina read for us. Let me pray and ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll consider this story together. Father, we do give you thanks for these men and women that you have gathered and assembled here, that you have called by your grace to gather, and now we sit under your word. We pray that you would give us humble hearts to hear your word, we pray that you would affect change in our hearts and lives through your word. We pray that your word would be living and active, that it would pierce and penetrate our soul and heart, and that through this we might be brought to you, to your heart, to your gospel, to your son, Jesus Christ, that you pursued us and that we might see it. Bless us as we go through this. Let your spirit empower both the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we pick up the story at verse 4. Here's how it goes. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So you know the story of Jonah. Jonah has been called by God, verses 1 to 3. He runs away from the presence of the Lord. The God sends this great storm until finally, by the end of the story, Jonah is hurled overboard. Verse 4 begins, But the Lord hurled a great wind. Win. The verse begins with that small three-letter word, B-U-T, but. It's a simple word, one we want to just blow past. And yet, what I want you to hear is that phrase is a beautiful phrase. In the scriptures, that phrase should sort of arrest us and cause us to sort of stop in our tracks. Here's what I mean. If you go to Ephesians 2, Paul is going to start telling people about the gospel. 
And one of the ways he tells people about the gospel is in the first three verses, he starts telling them who they really are. So he uses phrase in chapter 2 like, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So not motioning towards God, crying out towards God, pleading for God. You were dead. Nothing about you Godward. Nothing about you even motioning or longing for God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to say things like, and you were walking in the way of the prince of the power of the air, which is a title for God's enemy. And you were carrying out the sinful desires of your flesh. And and he ends this whole indictment by saying, and you were by nature children of God's wrath. And so in the first three verses, it's this dark, bleak, pitch black picture. And then verse 4 starts with, but God. Right? So Ephesians 2, you've got, you were dead in your sins. You're by nature children of wrath. You're following the enemy. You're carrying out the sins of your flesh. But God. And then it goes on to say, being rich in mercy and great love made us alive while we were dead and our trespasses seated us in the heavenly places. It's by grace you've been saved. And this this whole transition to good news hinges on those two words, but God. And so when you get to Jonah 1 verses 1 to 3, it's this pitch black scene. Jonah has fled. Jonah's run from the presence of the Lord. And then you get verse 4, but the Lord. And you're supposed to sort of be clued in. This story is about to turn. This story is about to take a different direction because Jonah's fleeing, but the Lord. And then it says, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. In God's grace, Jonah's story doesn't end at verse 3. It continues through to verse 4 because, but the Lord. And what does he do? He hurls this great storm. So we're tempted to go, all right, time out, because that does not look like grace or mercy at all. We see this storm that's going to threaten to break up the ship and kill Jonah and kill everybody. That looks like a picture of God's anger or wrath or judgment. Where is mercy anywhere there? Right? Most of us would say, look, your God is a, a crude God. He's a petty God. He's like a a kid throwing a temper tantrum. His guy goes away, and so he causes this great storm. And what I need you to see is that as you keep going through the story, this is God's mercy. Because God's not out to ruin Jonah. He's out to reclaim Jonah. He's really not out to ruin Jonah's life. This is his mercy. Let me tell you what judgment would have looked like. Judgment would have looked like, and Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, period. And that's where the story ends. Because judgment would have been God letting Jonah go. That's the, the most wrathful thing God could have done, was to let the prophet go. Right In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about idolaters and unbelievers who who want sin. And he says, here's how God's wrath is expressed in the world. It's not lightning bolts from heaven. It's not the great things you would expect. He says God's wrath is expressed three times in Romans 1. It says, and God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to their sinful desires and passions. The wrath of God is being expressed how? In letting sinners have their way in letting sinners go. The most wrathful thing God could have done would be to say, Jonah, you want to flee? Have it your way. 
Sit in the dark, in the closet, because no one's coming. Because that's what you want so bad. Right? The wrath of God lets you go. That's why if you feel no conviction over your sin, you should be terrified lest the wrath of God has let you go into your sin. I mean, think about this. How, how badly does God need Jonah? He doesn't. Tell me God couldn't deliver the message of mercy to Nineveh through someone else. This whole thing doesn't hinge on Jonah. If Jonah didn't want to do it, God could find another prophet. Right? God is the one who in the Old Testament took a, a donkey, a jackass, and made it speak. And some of you are thinking he's doing it again right now. But, but that's God, right? In the Old Testament, he takes a donkey to speak his word. Jesus is the one who says, if you shut your mouths, the rocks will cry out for me. God doesn't need Jonah. But he knows that Jonah needs God. And so in great mercy, in great love, he goes after his prophet. He will not let him run. I read this story or heard this story by a, a pastor named Tullian Chavigian. He's actually the grandson of Billy Graham, and he's a pastor down in Florida. He tells the story of how a few years ago he planted a church, and so I resonated with church planting. It grew, it was blossoming, it was succeeding, people were coming to know the Lord. It was wonderful. And there was this older established church down in Florida, 45 years under this really well-known pastor. And so they asked this pastor to come over, Tullian, to come over and, and merge the two churches and pastor for them. He says no, they call him again. He says no, they call him again. He says no. And then as they kept insisting, he, he sought the Lord and felt like maybe the Lord is telling me to do this. And after he was pretty convinced that's where God was calling him, he goes, only gets to the church and it's a nightmare. So the people who have been there for 45 years doing it a certain way see this new kid come to the block and, and they, they want him out. Pretty soon, the same committee that's called him is now trying to run him out of the church. And so he tells the story of how he's praying to the Lord and how he's seeking God. And, and now all the human approval and praise that he had a few weeks ago as they were inviting him is gone because they want him out. And so he's asking the Lord, I thought you wanted me here. I thought this is what you wanted me to do. And why is this great storm happening? And he said that as he went through that experience, he felt like God was saying to him, I love you too much to let you keep your idols. So he said that one of the things in his heart was he loved human acceptance and human approval. And through this process, God was ripping that out. The, the loved preacher was now the most hated man in the church. And God was ripping the things that he was really living for. Last week we talked that Jonah's running because he's got idols in his life, things that are above and beyond God. And he says that God loved him too much to let him have his idols. He pursued him and chased after him because he was going to have Jonah's heart or not have it at all. God's mercy is shown that he, he pursues this man. It's a, it's a ferocious mercy. It's a terrifying mercy. It's this chasing after you. But it's God's mercy nonetheless. And so God pursues Jonah. How does he do it? It says, he hurled a great wind upon the sea. The, the word great is this Hebrew word gadol. And you're going to see that it's used throughout the story several times. Last week we said Jonah's only 48 verses, four chapters. So anytime he uses a word, it's an important word. He's not wasting words throughout the book. And so when this word gadol is used over and over and over again, Jonah's trying to make a point. 
Everything in the book is big. It's this great wind. It's this great tempest. He's called to a great city. He's swallowed up by a great fish. The sailors have this great fear. So you're supposed to see that everything in Jonah is sort of supersized. And so this supersized whale of a storm is what God sends on Jonah. And the word hurled is used. God hurled this gadol storm, this great storm. The word hurled is sort of this word used by javelin. It's, it's, it's the same expression of when you hurl a javelin in the scriptures. So that there's no confusion about what's happening here. This is no coincidence that a storm happens to fall when Jonah's on the boat. The author wants you to know, no, no, this is God's doing. God has hurled this storm at Jonah like an athlete hurls a javelin at his target. God is the cause of this storm. And if you want to get a sense for how intense it is, just consider the mariner's response. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So when you hear this story, here's what I want you to think. Don't think of some novice sailors, right? These are hardcore, experienced mariners. I want you to think um, Discovery Channel's Deadliest Catch, right? If you've seen that show, it's the show following the ship as they go through the roughest of waters. It's these mariners that are as comfortable on the sea as you and I are on the dry land. These are not landlubbers. They've lived on the sea. They have sea legs. They've seen everything the storm could throw at them, the sea could throw at them. So you've got to imagine what manner of storm this would be for them to wail out. Like if you've seen that show Deadliest Catch, those are tough, solid men. I mean, what manner of storm would have to come onto that ship for you to see the next episode be, and then they all cried out to God? Because that's what happens. It says, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And that's when you're introduced to one of the many ironies that you're going to see throughout this passage. In these 16 verses, you're going to see all these twists and turns and things happen in a way you wouldn't expect. Let me show you one of the first ironies. Why did Jonah run? Jonah ran because the last thing he wanted to do was be around godless pagan idolaters. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because that city is filled with people who cry out to their own gods and all of them are idol-worshipping pagans. They're different than him, different culture, different religion. He wants nothing to do with them. Though The only thing he wants to do is huddle with people that are just like him. And now where's Jonah? Would you looky where Jonah is? Jonah is stuck on the sea in a bucket with idol-worshipping pagans, each of them crying out to their own god. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because it's a city filled with idol-worshipping pagans. And so now God has him not in the great city, but in a great storm sitting right next to them. God has him exactly where he wants. He sort of pinned this man down like an animal trapped in a cage. God is not going to let him go. One pastor said, it's like God takes Jonah by the neck and says, I'm not dropping this. I'm not letting this go. You've got to see that if you belong to me, you exist for them. Think of that. He's saying, I'm not dropping this. I know you don't care. I do. If you belong to me, you're here for them. And I'm not letting that go. I'm going to confine you till you get that you don't exist so that you can huddle with who you want to huddle to. 
You're here for them. I don't care if you don't love them. I don't care if you don't care for them. But if you belong to me, you're here for them. Remember, we called this series, We Are Jonah, because we keep seeing Jonah's story in us. And I wonder if God wants to grab us by the back of the neck and say, listen to me. You do not exist to huddle. You exist for them. If you belong to me, you're here for them. There's an entire people who are far away from the Lord, and you are here for them. God is pursuing Jonah, and even as he's pursuing him, he's beginning to work on his heart and the things that Jonah does not want to yield. The whole story is very similar to another story that you're going to see if you turn right a few hundred pages. If you go seven centuries later in Acts 27, there's another missionary prophet of God sent by God to pagans on a ship boat full of pagans. Only this missionary's name was Paul. And instead of running from God on a boat, he's on that ship because he's running for God, on mission, to the pagans. In fact, he's headed for Rome, where he'll give his life for these dirty pagans who don't know God, these idol worshipers. He lives for them. He's on mission for them. And a great storm, just like here, falls on that ship in Acts 27. So that everybody's in panic. In verse 20 of that chapter, it says they've abandoned hope itself of being saved. And yet into that chaos, the Apostle Paul steps up and he preaches God's word and he offers them a word from God and the entire crew of these idol-worshipping pagans are saved because of Paul. It's this beautiful picture of what a Christian in the world is supposed to look like and what a church in the world is supposed to look like. What about Jonah? So is Jonah ready now to step into the lives of these idol worshipers and preach the good news and preach the gospel and ready to rescue them? Verse 5, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Our boy Jonah is not looking very good. Right? He's gone down. Remember, Jonah's book doesn't waste words. Three times in chapter 1, you're going to hear the word down. He's gone down to Joppa. He's gone down into the inner part of the ship. He's laid down and is fast asleep. And the author wants you to get, that's where Jonah's headed. He is going down. The Septuagint, which is this early translation of the Hebrew Bible, so it was originally written in Greek. It's this old translation. It actually adds this commentary saying, and he was snoring. Just so that you get the picture. This is not Jonah's just gone down. He's not just taking a quick nap. He is out cold. And you wonder, sort of, what's going on with Jonah? How can he sleep? Maybe it's the kind of sleep that you sleep to sort of cope with what's really happening. I know for me, anytime I get into an argument or fight with Shainu, not that that ever happens, just hypothetically, if your pastor did that, every time I want to go take a nap, and I usually do, I, I try to sleep so that when I wake up, all the problems will be gone and we'll go get ice cream or something, right? So you just find a way to cope because you don't want to face what you're going through. Or you wonder if worse, Jonah's sleeping because he doesn't care. Like you would think this would be the kind of thing that keeps you up at night and you could hardly cause yourself to go to sleep. And maybe Jonah's just so careless about the whole thing, doesn't even see God's hand, doesn't see God pursuing him. Whatever the case, he's out cold. But the, the mariners, the sailors are not going to have any of that. So look at verse 6. 
So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So everyone on board is, is throwing cargo off the ship. They're crying out to their God. Jonah's gone down below deck. He's fast asleep. And so the captain comes, maybe because he heard him snoring, and I just picture him sort of kicking him on the floor, saying, what are you doing? How can you sleep? Cry out to your God. Maybe the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. It's sort of a scene like the one you'll see in Acts 17. So in Acts 17, there's a story where the Apostle Paul, who's a Christian, goes into a city, and he sees this shrine that says, to the unknown God. It's this idol to the unknown God. And, and what you learn is in that city, they had shrines all over the place to all the gods. You, you had the sun god, the land god, the love god, the war god. And so these people figured, what if we have a god that we miss? So we've got to set up this shrine just in case we miss one and we don't want him ticked off. So here's a shrine to the unknown god. It's that same thing here. The, the captain sees the rest of his crew calling out to the different gods. They see this man below deck and they go, call out to yours too. We don't want to leave anyone off the list just in case yours is the one that we've really ticked off or offended. So call out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us. And again, you're going to see some of the irony in the text. Some of the irony between the relationship between Jonah the prophet and the mariners, the pagans. Here's what I want you to see. Look at how they interact. Jonah is the religious believer. The, the mariners are the irreligious unbelievers. And yet in this text, what you find is that the unbeliever is rebuking the believers. It's as if the world is sort of rebuking the church. Here's what, what he says. Get up, call out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us. It's a, it's, a, it's a startling scene because what you have is the pagan rebuking the prophet. And he does so for two reasons. One, he says... How is it that you're asleep while we're dying up there? Right? The rebuke from the pagan to the prophet, from the irreligious to the religious, is how is it you could be so obsessed with yourselves that you don't notice we're dying up there? And if we are Jonah, could not the city say the same thing? How is it that you are so obsessed with what's going on with you that you don't notice there's a world around you dying? We're dying out there. How is it you could be asleep? And then he offers this other rebuke saying, why don't you call out to your God so that he can save us? It's as if the pagan is saying to the prophet, the irreligious to the religious, if you do have a God, why don't you use those resources to bless us? to do something for us, to save us. And if we are Jonah, I wonder if the city around us could say to us, if you do have a God, why are those resources not being poured out to save us so that we might not perish, to give a thought to us? We're Jonah. We huddle. We protect. We, we think about what's going on here while the world wants to say, we're dying out here and you're asleep. And if you have a God, why don't you use some of that to bless us? And perhaps the worst rebuke of all might be what the captain actually says. Because hear what the captain says. He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us that we might not perish. You know who was supposed to say that? Jonah. Wasn't that the exact message Jonah was supposed to give to Nineveh? 
Wasn't Jonah supposed to go to Nineveh and say, call out to God. Perhaps he will give you a thought that you might not perish. That's the gospel. The gospel is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Romans 10, will be saved. John 3, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. This pagan, irreligious unbeliever has to tell Jonah, if you call out to God, maybe he'll give you a thought so that we might not perish. And I wonder if it haunts Jonah to hear this coming from the unbeliever to him. Whatever the case, our boy Jonah is not looking good. And often the truth is neither are we. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men, men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here's the scene. They've woken Jonah up. They've taken him on top, up above the deck. And now the whole crew is there and they grab their magic eight ball and they start shaking and they go, whose fault is this? They throw some lots. They throw some dice. And wouldn't you know, it falls on Jonah. And so you just picture every eye on the ship is now on Jonah. And so they start interrogating him, barrage of questions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What have you done? What people are you? And so Jonah starts responding. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is what? I'm a Hebrew. And I wonder if that's not a coincidence. Because remember we talked last week. The central identity for Jonah is not who his God is. It's what people he belongs to. That's why he hates Nineveh. Because they're a threat to the Hebrews. Everything about him is this is who I am and this is who my people are. This is who I want to huddle with. This is where I'm comfortable. I'm a Hebrew. And then he follows with, And I fear the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. And you almost want to sort of chuckle and go, Jonah, do you hear what's coming out of your mouth? I mean, it's amazing that you can have knowledge and that knowledge never works its way down to your heart or affects the way that you live. Here's Jonah saying, You see this sea that's raging? I worship the God who made it. Oh, by the way, and I was trying to run away from God on it. Right? How is it that that knowledge has not translated to your heart so that you know where you're going to run from God? He made the sea. I wonder if Psalm 139, because Jonah knows the scriptures. You're going to see in chapter 2, he quotes the Psalms all the time. I wonder if Psalm 139 didn't ring in his head. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I sail on the far side of the sea, even there your hand is with me. Your right hand will hold me. And I wonder if Jonah's sort of trying to deafen his conscience to those words. Because when you're set for sin, you don't hear those things. Whatever the case, even if it's in his head, it has not made its way to his heart. And what's interesting is by the end of the passage, Jonah says, I fear the Lord who made the land and the sea. By the end of the passage, these pagans will give you a better picture of what it looks like to fear the Lord than Jonah does. By verse 16, the pagans are the one who fear the Lord exceedingly while Jonah is drowning to death. Verse 11, 
Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. All right, so the men have gotten Jonah to say, this is my fault. The lot has fallen on him. He talks about his God. He tells them that he's the one who's running from God. And so they go, how are we going to get rid of this? How are we going to appease this God? What are we supposed to do to you so that the storm will stop? And Jonah says to them, here's what you have to do. You have to pick me up and hurl me into the sea. It's that same word, hurl. Even as God hurled this storm at Jonah, so now Jonah would need to be hurled into the sea. He says, throw me overboard, let me die, because this storm has come because of me. All right, so what's going on in Jonah's mind? Preachers and commentators are sort of divided into what's really happening in Jonah's heart. Some say, listen, Jonah's finally getting it. Jonah says, this storm is my fault, and so he's beginning this journey towards confession and repentance. We know because of chapter 4, it's not complete, because by chapter 4, he's ready to curse the Ninevites and die again. But maybe it's at least the beginning of seeing that this is my fault, and, and God wants me for them. I'm here for them, and so maybe I'll die for their sake. This is my fault anyway. But others say, no, no. Jonah just wants to die because that's what you're going to see in chapter 4. Because Jonah knows Nineveh's only going to get mercy if I get there. And you know what? I'd rather die than see them blessed. Which is what he says in chapter 4. When God wants to show mercy to them, he says, just put me to death. And maybe in chapter 1, he's already saying, I'd rather drown than see those pagans get mercy. I don't know. Maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe he's thinking to himself, I get the message. This is what God wants. He wants me here for them. This is my fault. And then maybe even thinks, but I'm done. I, I don't want to do any of this anymore. Just put me to death. We're not going to escape this storm anyway. Throw me overboard. Because I'd rather just die than have, this, have any more of what God wants. Whatever the case, what you're going to find is still more irony. Because the pagans don't act the way that you would expect them to act. They've found out the cause of this storm. They even now know whose God is annoyed. So if you're an idol worshiper back in that day, if something's going wrong on the land, what do you got to do? You've got to offer a sacrifice to the land God and hope that he is appeased. And so everything in them should take Jonah without a second's thought, hurl him overboard, and somehow try to appease this God. But they don't. In fact, they try to row hard, it says, the, the literal language is they actually dig into the waters as they're rowing hard to try and save this man. And that's when you see it again. Here's the man of God who knows God, who knows the Bible, who's religious, who's with God's people, and he has no heart for these pagans. And yet here's these pagans who don't know God, and they're breaking their backs trying to save him. They're, they're boundless in their compassion and mercy towards him. He could not care less if the city goes to hell and all the pagans with it. And yet these same pagans are breaking a sweat, trying to row against this storm to show him mercy, to show him compassion. The irreligious are showing greater character and mercy and compassion than Jonah the religious. 
It's an incredible rebuke. But they cannot row against God who can. And so verse 14 to 16. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. As if all the irony wasn't enough, by the time the story ends, who's calling on the Lord? Who's calling upon God? These mariners. The irreligious have now turned towards God. And not just turned towards God. It says, O Lord, but, but it's actually Yahweh. They're calling God by His name. So this is not some generic God. This is like using the name. Like you know how you watch award shows and everybody wants to thank God. It'd be like one of those actors going on saying, and I'd like to thank Jesus. And suddenly that would take us back because that's moved from generic to specific. These mariners don't just say, we call out to the God. They say, oh Yahweh, oh Yahweh. Make sure that we're innocent for this man's blood. And with great hesitancy, they do what Jonah says and they throw him overboard and the sea is stilled. And by the end of the passage, these mariners offer sacrifices to Yahweh and make their vows to him. And the religious man is overboard in the sea. It's this great irony the whole way through. The irreligious are rowing and praying and crying and showing compassion and offering sacrifices and worshiping. They literally have a worship service on the ship. And the religious are disobeying and disbelieving and uncaring and running and fleeing and drowning. And what you're going to see throughout the book is over and over again on the ship and in the city, the pagans seem to respond to God while the religious are deaf to Him. And then thousands of years later when another prophet comes, wouldn't you know, the pagans and the prostitutes run to this man named Jesus and the religious want nothing to do with him, completely blind to who he is. And yet, you have this God of mercy, of grace, of wisdom that is pursuing both. And is so wise that he could actually pursue both at the same time. Even after he's, as he's going after the pagans, he's calling back the prophet to himself as well. It's like the, the father who goes after the lost son and the elder son at the same time. And only God could pull that off. It's this story of God going after the city and the pagans and going after his prophet as well. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that you have a God who is pursuing the world. A God who is pursuing the world. A God from whom religious and irreligious people have run in different ways, but they're running. And a God who is pursuing both. Who sent Jesus Christ, his son, into the world so that this son without sin might be hurled to his death. And where Jonah was spared, this son was hurled into death and swallowed up for three days and three nights as Jonah would be. He's the one who's thrown overboard, not for his own guilt, but for ours. The only guilt Jesus had is ours, so that the only innocence we might have would be his. Jesus was hurled into God's wrath, into God's storm, 
and swallowed up for three days and three nights so that God might pursue us. Let me end with a story. So a few years ago, I went to India on a missions trip. So just for a summer, a few weeks, we went with this team to this orphanage in southern India. We get to the orphanage, there's 13 of us, I think there was like seven girls and six guys, something like that. It's this orphanage with about 100 little girls, all of them girls, no boys. So we, when we get there, we're there to serve them for a week or two, love on them, whatever we can do. We notice they immediately were drawn to and attracted to the girls on our team. They wanted nothing to do with the guys. We looked uglier, fatter, darker, whatever it was, we were just scary to them, they didn't want anything to do with us. And I remember on one of these days, we would get there, They'd have lunch and afterwards would be recess and they'd go out and play tag. So one of these days I was determined, we're going to be here for two weeks. I'm going to play with them, whether they like it or not. So I go outside, I start playing tag and they're running only I, I begin to notice they're not playing anymore. They're just literally running as fast as they can to get away from me. They're just sprinting for dear life. Over the course of the week, they had to come in contact because we were sort of their teachers in classes. And over the week, eventually what begins to happen is they see us different. As we spent time with them, they began to see we were there for them, that we cared about them, we were serving them, we loved them. So that by the end of the week, the, the strangest thing happens. So I go outside after lunch and I go to play tag and now every one of them wants to be it so that they could chase me. In fact, they fight over who's it so that all of them chase me. And I think that's how the gospel works, right? You have this God, you don't know his ways, you don't like his heart, you don't get his mission, you think all of it is out to ruin you, he's perhaps pursuing you with what looks like a storm, and so you flee with all your might. But when you begin to see the manner of God that he is, the manner of God that pursues you at the expense of his own son, who casts his son into death for your sake, you begin to see who he is, so that even today, Maybe you might start pursuing the one who has been pursuing you and chasing the one who has been chasing you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are, as Jonah will say in chapter 4, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, boundless in compassion. Thank you that in your great mercy you have chased us who have run. You have found us who were lost. We give you thanks that you have in your mercy not given us over to our sin, but that even today everyone who is assembled here is here because you want to call out to them and plead with them. You're pursuing them even now. And I pray that our hearts would begin to turn to you, religious and irreligious, that finally we'd start getting that this is not a gospel for the people in the city, the religious man was the one who was all lost. And so are we. And I pray that our church and our city alike might hear your word. I pray today that you would even move in our hearts so that we might see if we belong to you, we're here for them. We exist for this city. That Seven Mile Road doesn't exist for us to huddle. It exists for the sake of of the world that is asking us, how can you sleep when we're dying out there? And if you have a God, how can you not call on Him so that we might not perish? I don't know what your Spirit wants to do in all of our hearts, but I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to preach to us even now. 
Hear us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.